What's going on guys? Welcome to another episode of the Dreams to Reality podcast and today we've got a very very special guest and this is somebody I've actually been following for quite a while now actually after listening to him on another podcast. Believe it or not, um, even though we got this podcast, I don't listen to many other people's, um, but it was actually Ben Coomer's podcast, and something really took me back when listening to this podcast. I'm going to go into it today into a lot more detail, um, but as you can already see, we are not in a studio back in Bristol. We are here in the home gym of my guest today. And to be honest, looking at his house, looking at this home gym is something what I actually inspire to be um, and grow and build, especially for my family one day. So with that said, um, let's not waste any time. Dr. Cameron Nickel, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, mate. First of all, congratulations on having a fantastic name. Thank- I know, I have <laughs> literally got the best name in the whole wide world. So um, there's so many things I want to cover, right? Okay. Because you are whether you like the word or not, an entrepreneur, you're an athlete, and you're also a doctor, right? Yep. Heavily involved in medicine. Uh, well, that's by definition. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm a full med- full, fully qualified medical doctor, uh, working in hospitals uh, full-time at the moment, uh, right. and heading into a career in probably general practice. Um, as you mentioned, yes, I'm an athlete, so former Olympic rower. So I spent uh, six years rowing for Great Britain, uh, four of which in wow. the, the national team, uh, and finished off that sort of adventure uh, with the London 2012 Olympics. And I now sort of balance my time between uh, my sort of fitness venture, which is rowing wad, uh, my medical work day to day, my family, which has become a bigger part of my life since having my son 18 months ago. And then I sort of reserve about five to 10% of my time for what I just call exciting opportunities. So like this, like this, mate, <laughs> uh, you joke, but it's true. So, I mean, you know, obviously just nice people doing nice things I have time for. So that's so why this come out. The first thing what strikes me when you're saying saying all of that is balance how do you actually let's, let's yeah. go back a little bit yeah i think there's going to be so many things i can personally take away right and hopefully everybody at home as well so where did it all start for you you talked about being an athlete well, I being, was born being, being a rower <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 um i suppose the biggest the biggest kind of pivot in my life um or the, the biggest kind of event in my life that uh changed the way i was thinking about things was being introduced into rowing so i so worked pretty hard at school and got into medical school at university college london in in, in london wow. um and and that was a big goal for me that was my like top choice medical school really wanted to Where get are you there. originally from uh so i've traveled around the world so dad's job i was over in dubai and i was over in um, asia as a youngster okay. so i spent some years in japan um, to speak a bit of Japanese, Scottish Nihongo um, Shabudu, and uh, I yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> it might be nothing. You might, yeah. Uh, but then I, I got to medical school, having spent sort of my my adolescent years in Somerset, um, and grew up there. But within the first year at medical school, I was kind of a bit thirsty for sport, and I needed to kind of get get moving um, because so I was spending. How, how old was you at this point? So I was eighteen. 18. I got got to medical school at eighteen, um, and it was an intense program so you're in you know lectures just before nine and it's kind of back to back to back you know it's almost like a nine to five Mm. job um intense exams intense study very very competitive because you get ranked uh not necessarily on how well you're doing you get ranked compared to your peers so you've got you've got 350 400 people in in a year group um and your sort of decile the the top 10 percent the bottom 10 percent that matters so even within that quite you know 
intelligent, hardworking group of people, mm. you've still got to be kind of the best of the best to get yeah. good jobs at the end of it. So that was, a, as an 18-year-old, quite was, a difficult experience. So was yeah. that quite competitive? Did you feel... Massively, yeah. like like... Um, what was the environment and the culture like? Was it a supportive culture or was it everybody is out for themselves? No, it was very much supportive. Okay. Um, so everyone is, I think as a medic, you're slightly of a different mindset um, to people who are doing other degrees in university. And the reason I say that is because your traditional degree that's maybe three or four years long, just a little bit shorter, and it's a little bit more hands-off. So some of my um, colleagues that were you know, in the arts, for instance, they had sort of eight or nine hours a week of, of touch time with their, with their professors. Obviously, the sciences is much more um, time-intensive. You've got to be in labs and things like that, but there's less, you know, less potential reading and not having mm. reading all these novels in the background. Um, but with medicine, you're there yeah. for sort of five, six years. So my course was six years. Um, five years of medicine and an extra year to do another degree on top of it. So you sort of know you're there for the long haul and you know that it's, you're all kind of going into the same profession. Whereas, you know, if you study maths at university, you may not all go on to do the same career. Mm. So there's a little bit of a kind of sisterhood, brotherhood, I guess, that takes place where it's quite cliquey. And so I think from the outside looking in at university, that's probably what people see is that, you know, medics keep themselves to themselves. And then there's the sort of rest of the university. Um, and the reason I mention that is it's relevant. So when I started rowing, I loved being on the River Thames in sort of the heart of London and in you know West London, um, boat race course. I just loved being outside. And I started at medical school, which was quite a cliquey boat club, mm. um, and sort of went through the ranks quite quickly there. And it ended up being in the University of London boat club, and that's where things for me took a big detour. Mm. Um, and everyone told me you can't do rowing and medicine. It's it's just impossible. Because, like, how many hours do you think you was dedicating towards studying a, a week then? Um, well, you've got nine to five, five days a week. Um, so what's that? Le- legitimately nine to five. So that, because, that's for like, example, I've been to uni. Yeah. I've done a, a business course. Yeah. So they, you might be in lessons or 16 hours a week, but yeah. then you can do whatever you want with the rest of your time, if you want to. Yeah. But you have to be, is it kind of... It's quite, well... For me, it was quite strict. Um, so there's regular exams. So every, I think we had every four to eight weeks, there was some sort of either formative or summative exams. Um, and so, you know, eight times five is 40. Take out a lunch break. That's so mm. 35 hours a week of lectures. And you're roughly expected to kind of put that amount of time in away. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could pluck a number out of thin air and say that's 70 hours a yeah, week of studying. Um, obviously, those that pick up, facts a bit quicker um I, I just got one of those brains i can retain weird facts which has kind of helped me um you can maybe dial that down but i think the for me the first couple of years at university were all about learning how to learn uh, and i was much better at doing that when i got into really juggling olympic rowing training and medical exams i was very good at knowing how i learned and knowing how i could get the most out of myself um, that's, that's fast so how do you learn uh, what so did, what did you discover in those first kind of two years. So, for example, when I went into uni, it's kind of the first of my family to do it. Um, I'm also heavily dyslexic, ADD. Yeah. Um, so I only discovered that in my first year at university because I kind of went into my first um, lecture. And I was like, what's going on here? Yeah. I was actually, you got a ball over there, but I was playing American football, did a bit for GB and stuff like that. Yeah. And I thought I've had too many hits in my head in American football. 
am I getting stupid? But the yeah. fact was, I was just struggling how to understand how I process the information. Yeah. For me, I wouldn't say my spelling's particularly bad. It's the way I process information yeah. and how long it takes to process it and the way I understand it. Yeah. That is my biggest challenge. Yeah. Everyone's got their own challenges. But what did you learn about your kind of learning style within the first yeah, year or two? Good question. Well, first of all, the thing I'd say to that is I think that that is fundamental... Um, or, or a fundamental issue that we have in our education system today. I think I was fortunate in that the way I learn is, happens to be congruent to the way we test and examine people. Mm. So I learn by, I don't like being wrong. So I, if I do loads and loads of questions and tests and I get tested and tested and tested, that's actually quite good for me because I'm like, oh, I'm not good at that. Okay. I can get better at it. But that's not good for everyone. Is that a genetic thing? What, what I don't know. I, I think it's probably a little bit of nature and nurture. Um, I, I, like, I like knowing the answers to things. I like problem solving. So even in, before this podcast, we were just talking about random different things. And even just hearing a problem, I'm trying to find a it's solution true. to it. And uh, just so everybody knows, um, before we had the cameras rolling, obviously, I reached out to you. You don't know too much about what I do. So you asked me. So I said, this is what I do in schools. This is my main focus. Yeah. This is the main program we're trying to push. This is what we're trying to make money from. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but what about this? Have you tried this? What about that? Yeah. Um, I guess you're going to have these type of challenges. You can combat. Yeah, Straight yeah. away, I can see your thinking. Yeah. And even if it's ideas I've thought about, you think about it in a complete different way as well. Exactly. And it's not necessarily right. It's just what works for me. And I guess I'll always be suited to that type of of, um, career that type of mind so I think that's why startup and creating new things is quite exciting for me I think it's why I'm, I'm good at medicine and why I've chosen that as a career path um, I like numbers so things like business can I, I can make it work um, but it's really interesting what you touched on about your story and I think that's something that we need to as a society get much better it's that kind of phrase that I'm going to completely um, screw up but it's when you know Einstein said um, if you were to m measure a fish yeah. by how high it could jump it would think it was stupid it looks like yeah something uh, well, no, yeah, something like that yeah. isn't it? if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree yeah. it'll live its whole life thinking it was stupid, stupid. exactly yeah. and so and I think that's what's really wrong at the moment with the education system is that we're trying to conform everyone into this very I mean there's a lovely um, a lovely t a TED talk I think Sir Ken Robinson where he says uh, if anyone is listening watch that Sir Ken Robinson I'm pretty sure I got the name right uh, on creativity uh, and he said that what we're trying to do in this education system is effectively produce university professors you know we test people from like five and upwards and then all of a sudden we get more and more academic focused um, and people come out the end of it knowing all these facts but actually, is it suited to the real world? Mm. Probably not. And I think now more than ever, I mean, you're an example, is that you can, you can create and start something that you really believe in. And if it adds value and you're able to capture that value, that's a business, that's a living, but, and you can do positive yeah. changes in the world. And it's, it comes down to that conversation even kind of around university. And as I said from the beginning, we don't have no structure for today's, but I think it's important because... Is university for everybody? Some schools, some places, some organizations really push it. And I think there is a lot of value in, in university, more so obviously if you're becoming a doctor or yeah. a lawyer or something. But when I was on a business course with probably 300 other people, yeah. and a lot of them was just there because they wanted to be, they didn't know anything else they wanted to do. Um, and everybody, literally probably everyone, had the goal to just go and work for somebody else. Yeah. I was the only one person who had the goal of saying, listen, when I graduate, I'm working for myself. Man. Yeah. So I used that time at uni to really build something um, before I left. And it's just trying to understand how we all operate and not just trying to follow the rat race. Is that the... Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to phrase it. I would say, to your point, is, is university right for everyone? I would say no. 
but I would caveat that very quickly with I think that higher education is right for everyone and let me caveat that statement as well which is that we could con- we need to continue to learn as human beings mm. right and higher education has almost been tethered to the concept of university and I think it needs to be separated mm. where well, once you come yeah. through school you don't stop learning um, you know you if, you if you want to be a carpenter or a mechanic or if you want to start your own online business or if you want to be a speaker you still have to learn the tools of your trade and you have to continue to learn as an individual because um, it a it makes us fulfilled as human beings but it also allows us to contribute more to society and we just raise the bar of what's acceptable um so why doesn't that happen well I, that's a really big question isn't it um i think the first thing i can think of is money um so with all these things there needs to be a value exchange uh, it's quite an easy thing to say i'll pay some money and i'll go to university happy days but like we were having this discussion beforehand, how do you, I mean, university is a very set criteria. There's a degree, there's something tangible there. There's a product that you can pay for that you can then get. You can put a stamp on your name, mm. you can get a degree certificate and it has a tangible value that's already recognized because of the years that have gone before it. Yeah. Uh, and there's that relationship there. How do you do that with um, a speaker that speaks a message, has a fantastic voice and fantastic message to speak? Um, and continues to learn their trade. It's, mm. it's quite difficult to, from where, from yeah. where we are now, to, to be able to deliver that. Um, and actually, just using the same example of Sir Ken Robinson's talk, he talks about a, a girl that was fidgeting, and so I think she was seven or eight years old, and parents brought her in and said, you know, I don't really know what's going on, she's fidgeting, and, and the teacher said, oh, she's, a bit, she's fidgeting. Um, and then they brought her to this one teacher, and they said, well, let's just pop her in the room, and just, they just played some music, and they walked out of the room. And, uh, and they're sort of looking through the, through the glass as she was inside, and she just got up and started dancing. Mm. And so this teacher said, well, it's quite obvious, your, your daughter's a dancer. And that young girl actually then went on to become um, a music producer, a fantastic dancer, and I think she was one of the um, you know, artistic directors of Cats, and she's a multimillionaire. Wow. It's like, but if you'd, have, if you'd have taken that girl into some other circles... You know, Sir Ken Robinson says, "Well, we'd have medicated her and told her to do some more math." You know, and that's that's the kind of I think paradigm shift that needs to change mm. at a quite, quite a large level um, for us to produce human beings that are you know contributing to their own kind of true calling and makes them feel most valued in the world. And what's the worst about this situation is majority of teachers agree with you. The majority of teachers agree. Well, I don't know many teachers. I've got see, friends obviously, that teachers. I, I, I know obviously every day mm. I come, but they're following their yeah. job. They're doing what they're told to do, whether yeah. they agree with it or not. So yeah. it's like, yeah, a lot needs to be done. Um, we could probably talk about it for <laughs> yeah, hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so back, back, Sorry, back, back to you. No, it's fine. Back to, back, That's to, all right. back to your uni and learning how you worked. Yeah. How was that whole process? The first couple of years in uni, have you started rowing at this point? Yeah, so I started rowing uh, two months into, no, a month into university. Uh, I was the a first co- month. Uh, so, uh, like all things, I went to the Freshers' Fair and just t- mm. tested different things out. So, I went and played a bit of basketball, which is what I did before rowing. I really loved that. Um, did different sorts of clubs and societies. And then I went down to the river. Um, you know, it was like, oh, free barbecue. I was like, oh, great, I'll go. Uh, and then, like, you can <laughs> free food. You can happy I'm days. starving. And I was like, do I have to wear one of those, like, dodgy lycra? And they're like, no, no, no. Don't worry, just come in like gym shorts, you'll be fine. I was like, fine. And I love just being out on the water and that kind of like calm, tranquil, you know, just feeling the boat together, um, being outside. I absolutely loved it. Um, so you've never been interested in rowing before? I'd seen it as I think an 18, 17, 18 year old. Um, so I'd seen it as a thing that some people do at university. Because um, I, I mean, I, I, 
didn't row at school and mm. there was very few schools I knew that r- rowed um, and obviously these boats are quite expensive it's quite inaccessible yeah. for a lot of people and so I started doing that and absolutely loved it uh, two, two or so months after that I did a fitness test on the rowing machine which was my kind of first real experience with the rowing machine um, and it was quite good it was quite fast was you relatively fit up to this point did you exercise yeah. did you yeah well, um, so I, I did a lot of sport as a kid you said basketball and yeah I did like bar- that, yeah. I mean as a youngster I did like, ice hockey basketball baseball football uh, rugby cricket then later on in, in sort of adolescent years basketball was the sport I loved I still sort of do you can see some basketballs yeah. on the wall um, and so you know I, I just love that, that sport. Uh, basketball signed by do you know basketball? A little bit. So that's uh, uh, Magic Johnson and Larry oh, yeah, Bird. I know Magic Johnson and Larry yeah. Bird. Yeah, it's from the, uh, from the 80s. So they were, wow. they were dueling it out as I was a one or two year old. So I think as a 10 year old, my era was the kind of Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, yeah, Seattle Seahawks. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, uh, Seattle Super, Supersonics, yeah. And uh, so I went back and sort of watched all the archive videos from uh, as a sort of 10-year-old. So, yeah. Magic uh, Johnson, wow. Them he's play. a huge success now as well, not just from his basketball. Yeah, well, he's a, he's a business magnate as well. So he, um, he's been very successful in his I life. Think, I can't uh, remember. I research his net worth, as you do, whether it's, oh, ac- do you? Whether it's accurate or not. Um, I, I watched the interview, and yeah, he's like 500 million or something. But he's a fantastic example of he was a Laker in LA and mm. you know had, had that journey as an athlete and then just felt a real sense of obligation to give back to the club so I think until very recently actually until I think the Lakers didn't make the playoffs last year I think that's when he stepped down as head of the organisation oh so he's still yeah. he's still a part of the organisation I don't you? think he is now okay. uh, and you know hardcore basketball fans will correct me if I'm wrong but um, I, I think that he was still up until last year the head of the organisation mm. so that, that's a real example to me of people that are doing things for the right reasons mm. and giving back for the right reasons um, mm. anyway tangent we were talking about rowing um, <laughs> I uh, so I I, 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 got, I got a bit faster at that and um, I was in the University of London team and then about eight months after starting I was in the top university boat which was kind of cool and then Was that good? That's really good okay. um, I, I went to Henley Regatta and got to the final which is kind of a big deal lost which was sucked but then the, the year good. after I went back and so won Henley and then won my first uh, sort of under 23 Great Britain vest and then the year after that just timing worked so, out for so me So can you educate me yeah. a little bit on sure, rowing? Sure, sure are you rowing by yourself or are yeah, you rowing question. with a team? So rowing has a few different boats. So rowing, as the name rowing, is one oar per person. Mm. So you've got like a one long stick yeah. and that's, that's your oar. There's another specialty which sometimes people refer to as rowing, which you probably will think about it as rowing, which is an oar in each hand. Oh, okay, yeah. I got you. That's actually called sculling. So S-C-U. That's the one I think I've seen. Yeah. yeah. And that's what people think about as rowing. And it, and it kind of is. It's, you know, the umbrella is rowing, but it's rowing and sculling are the two Is there like a bit of beef between the two? Yeah, there is. There's a little bit of beef. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. It's like rowers versus scullers. Yeah. Scullers, you know, everyone's, well, the rowers say it was a bit, bit crazier. Um, What's actually harder? Uh, so I found sculling more technically difficult. I was always okay. a better rower in a boat, like in, in pairs, fours and eights, than a sculler. Mm. Uh, and then, so both of those disciplines have three Olympic um, events each. Okay. So the smallest boat you can be in is a sculler, is one, by yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then the biggest one is four. So there's like four of you with two oars each. So it goes single, then double, then quad. So there's three yeah. boats. And as a rower, obviously, two oars. So you've got to have one person per 
four. So it's a pair. That's the smallest boat. And it goes pair four. And then the blue ribbon okay. then is the eight. Um, and the eight is the boat that I loved the most. I still do. It's just so fast. Mm. It's wicked. Um, How so, fast? Uh, so it'll make your coaches, if, if they're cycling, very uh, out of breath. If they're cycling next to you, they'll, they'll do 2K in five minutes and 18 wow. seconds. Uh, as the, is, that's the, oh, in fact, I think the gold medal time is now 5.17. But yeah, so five minutes and 20 seconds to do 2K. It's pretty quick. Uh, sort of 120 place. If you've ever been on the rowing machine, 120. That's do you know what? Quick. Rowing it was one of those exercises, right? You always talk about even like triathlons and stuff like that. I reckon they should choke the row, the row in there. Because going on the rowing machine just in the gym, yeah. I, like, I don't do much rowing, but doing like little interventions, kind of sprints. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Oh my word. Yeah, it's difficult. What, for me, the kind of little mantra I say is that people grow up running and grow up cycling, but they don't grow up rowing. Mm, it's true. Uh, and, and the reason for that is it's become a bit of a foreign movement. So for sort of thousands of years, we just, you know, it was a part of locomotion. We used to go down the river and row, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but it is quite counterintuitive, just the way the boat's set up and physics, where, you know, you're essentially connecting your hands to your feet, but you need mm. to use your entire body to help kind of lever the boat past the oars. And that's quite an important thing. It, everyone thinks it's moving water and like trying to make the oars go fast. But actually all you're doing is putting the oars in the water and really kind of making sure that's nice and firm and solid. And then you're actually pushing yourself and pushing the boat past the wow. point in which you've anchored into the water. There's a deep metaphor there. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not fleeing around, just you know, doing good solid work, deep work. But yeah, so because it's such a foreign movement, um, if you're not used to it, it can make you tired very quickly. But therein lies the real fun and the challenge because it's, it's quite simple. Like we could just jump on that machine now and show you a few things. And like you, you, you go much faster quite quick, quickly. Um, so easy to learn. But then it's really, really difficult to master. Mm. To get really good at it requires, you know, hours, weeks, years of dedication. Playing completely ignorant. Go for it. Is there a talent towards for it? Uh, yes, but compared to sports like tennis, football, etc., uh, it's it's slightly different. So the skill set for um, those sports like tennis, uh, football, etc. Uh, highly skill based so just because you could run the 100 meters or do an assault course very quickly assault course you know obstacles yeah. like SAQ stuff doesn't mean you're going to be a great footballer right you could run around the pitch mm. but if you can't kick the ball you can't land on Cristiano Ronaldo's head you're not going to get picked um, whereas if you've got a 5 minute and 42k time and you're 6.5 feet tall pretty confident we can make you into an Olympic rower as long uh, no as, luck is, yeah. <laughs> my dream god yeah so so rowing is uh, like swimming like triathlon is quite a high physiologically demanding sport mm. so think about it a little bit like race car driving um you lewis hamilton is never going to be winning the formula one if you give him a sort of you know ford fiesta it's just not mm. going to happen right no matter how good he is at picking the lines and hitting the apex it's just not going to happen yeah, it's true. so you first need to have build a car that's fast enough to be able to compete and then once you've got a car that's fast enough, then you need to be able to drive it. Mm. So that's the kind of distinction I'd make. Okay, let's go back. So no, sorry, back mate. to rowing. First couple of years, um, things are starting to go well with rowing. Yeah. Rowing's going great. Yeah. How's your studying going? It's okay at the moment. So Just for, okay? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I'm someone that likes to be really good at what I do. Um, I was sort of in the middle of the pack, so to speak. So in terms of like the decile ranking that I talked about, top, I wasn't top, I wasn't bottom, I was just sort of in the middle. Just say you took Rowan out of the picture. Yeah. Would you have been at the top? I mean, it's difficult to say. Say, but do you think you would have been? I mean, knowing me, that's where I would have wanted to be. Okay, yeah. I got you. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's where things were. Uh, I did my first three years of studying um, full-time, and then I did my first three years of rowing full-time. Um, 
so that was really really difficult uh, i was i mean stupid stories like waking up at you know as you do waking up at five getting the first train from warren street station at five thirty-five, out to you know do my first rowing session back for lectures and then repeating that journey afterwards so finishing five o'clock out to the boathouse doing a session coming back home it was just stupid where did that drive come from though yeah it's really interesting that's, isn't that's, it like, that's that's not easy no and especially for doing it for two three four five years well that I, level of consistency yeah to continue to do that obviously we can talk about habits and mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. probably became a part of just what you do but where did that come from yeah, I mean, great question. We can go kind of deep with this, I guess. But so my parents are really hard workers. Um, my mum and dad both have, you know, they've, they've worked incredibly hard and still continue to do so. Um, so I think that that's a, probably an example that I've always been shown. All my family are pretty like, what I call like grafters. So like, you know, my uncles, aunts, like grandparents, they've all just like kind of knuckled down and just mm. kind of got on with things. So I think that's been shown to me from a young age. Uh, but I also probably had some early wins as a youngster. So my parents were also quite good, well, quite good at celebrating success. Um, so whenever I did something well as a kid that I worked mm. hard on, they were like, great, that's amazing. Well done. That's, that's fantastic. And they'd always almost try and reward effort. Um, so even if, if I'd done something well, um, but I hadn't really tried that hard, they weren't that bothered. Whereas if I tried really hard at something and no matter what the outcome, they kind of reward that. So for me, it was almost, I guess, subconsciously that effort was something that I was always being rewarded for. Um, and that's what I found in my life is that the things that I try hardest at that I want the most, they tend to be the more successful ones. Mm. Um, so there's probably at some level that, uh, and I just, I, I think I've always, looking back on kind of adolescent years i've had good heroes so i've chosen my heroes well so the basketball players that used to you know play on the big stage i never used to kind of pick the the people who were driving around in lamborghinis that were kind of you know shooting the winning shot now and again i would always sort of take um comfort from the people you know, the legacy well not so much the legacy as the kind of the hard workers so you know like everyone talks about michael jordan as like this amazing amazing guy and you know he's arguably one of the greatest basketball players of all time but like the amount of work that he put in to get him there you're not going to say anything controversial now are you am i what like him, the greatest him, of all time. well i mean <laughs> in, in my mind it's it's him and lebron james with like without a shadow of the doubt yeah. the, the two people there and you can talk about rings and um you know stats and all that but so anyway that effort uh, for me it, the the for me there's kind of no there's no way round that effort to to, like to get the things that are shiny i think in life i mean you can get lucky you can win the lottery you might go on a reality tv show and like whatever and and make some money you might i don't know but they're the out they're the 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 outliers as malcolm gladwell will say right Mm -hmm. they're the kind of like one percent of the one (laughs) percent for most people if you work hard and if you work smart and you continuously you know kaizen if you continuously learn and get better at what Mm -hmm. you do it's pretty hard to continuously fail for, for your entire life. Yeah. It's normally an upward spiral in my experience. Um, and you'll, and doesn't mean to say you're, you're never going to be exposed to failure. Um, yeah. And you know, Roger that, Fed, that Roger, could look like anything though, couldn't it? Failure obstacles could kind of look like anything. I yeah. Guess. And there's a lovely story. Um, that I, I like to kind of like remind myself of sometimes. So Simon Sinek is like one of these motivational yeah, speakers. Yeah, I've, I've seen some of his stuff. Uh, and Leaders I'm, eat. Uh, leaders eat last I don't know yeah. if that's his is that his yeah, yeah. it is and it, but start with why is really question, sorry before no, we do right. that yeah. do leaders eat first or do leaders eat last so we've had this debate quite a few times on different channels or even at my talks working with adults I've done some Fine. stuff with like midwives and stuff yeah. like, do leaders eat first or do they eat last 
I mean, I think they can do both, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if, you're, yeah. if you're if you're a, I mean, it completely de- depends. If you're a, I mean, think of it in a different way. If you're a shepherd leading a flock, I mean, you can lead up a kind of alpine path that's quite wiggly and quite dangerous. You can easily sort of set the pace and set the path, and then people can follow you. Or if you're out in a field and you kind of you want to roughly go there, you can easily be the shepherd at the back, kind of just steering sheep. Mm. And so I don't think it has to be an absolute rule. Um, but what I was going to say was that so the consistent theme I've seen. I've been very very fortunate to be around you know high performers in different places. Um, most of that from my athletic career. Um, but one of the things I've listened to is Roger Federer saying that there's like there's no way around hard work. You just have to embrace it. Uh, and working, you know, under the kind of the wings of, of Jürgen Grobler, who's um, the head coach of the rowing team. So I was there with, for four years. He used to have this phrase, which was like, "There are no shortcuts." You know, <laughs> he's East German. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and it's true. Like there there might be shortcuts that you know you you may win the lottery. You may, as I said, like get on a reality. Team. You may just get a lucky break and. Fantastic. That may happen, but it's pr- but it, it probably won't. In just the law of averages, it, it probably won't. So, uh, so you have to yeah. embrace. And I won't even call it hard work. I call it smart work because you know I think there's a there's another flip side where I think there's a lot of this kind of like hustle nature at the moment, which is just you know twenty four seven, don't sleep. Da, da, da. Yeah, you got you got, really agree you got with. nothing. Like my nan was a cleaner her whole life, and she was a very very hard working cleaner. But was she necessarily working smart? There's a difference, you know, what you're working towards, what, what direction you're trying to go for. Well, Obviously, yeah. she was trying to produce for her family and stuff yeah. like that. So complete different responsibilities and complete different mind frame. But you've got some hard workers out there who are not doing or not yeah. multimillionaires and but stuff. But also, I mean, I don't know if that is even the goal to be, like, everyone needs to be a multimillionaire. And I, I think like, you know, screw you to the person that says that people who are working really hard to provide for their family are like less than those that are working smart and creating like loads of wealth it's like well no screw you like that's shit i mean just because you've got lucky or because you happen to have a skill set that's suited to having more financial gain Mm. that doesn't make you a better person um so what is a problem with the hustle mentality so that was me so actually let me break it down yeah yeah, when i first started doing this i said a little bit at the beginning being a motivational speaker yeah six seven years ago i was trying to have that that kind of image of 25-8, the grind don't stop, work, 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 yeah, work, yeah. work. And actually now I look back on it, it's just bullshit. And yeah. I was lying to myself because I was lying to everyone and I wasn't actually working that hard. And I definitely wasn't working very smart. Right. It was all kind of egotistical driven um, and it was false. It wasn't what the, it wasn't reality. And I think that, so there's a few things to dissect there. Um, the first is that I get really pissed off with people that say what they're not doing. So the first thing that I... That was me at one point. Yeah, and, and I think I've probably been guilty of it in the past as well. You know, it's that um, people that are trying to teach people how to be something, but they've got no experience of being that mm-hmm. themselves. It's like, what, a, what an absolute lie. What an absolute fallacy to sort of putting yourself out there saying, oh, this is how you run a multi-million pound business. And like, well, how many multi-million pound businesses have you run? None. Well, how on earth have you got any experience? How on earth can you be teaching these people, right? So that's, um, that's kind of the first thing that I'd like dissect out of that. Um, remind me of what, the, what you said um, about 30 seconds ago. I've just kind of lost my, um, the second thing that I was going to dissect out of it. You're talking uh, about... Um, you're talking about... about s- hustle, lying, Oh, uh, that was it. Media, hustle, yeah. So the... Um, 
the second thing that I kind of get frustrated with is that people are not looking at this with a kind of wider lens. So I think it's really easy and it's almost comforting to say, I'm going to hustle hard and I'm going to just work all hours of the day. It's almost there's a sense of comfort in, in that you know you're kind of trying to do your best and you're just kind of working hard and working hard. And I think that that hustle culture has come from a place of people thinking that young people or you know young professionals are not working hard they're just out pissing around doing nothing and I, and so I, I feel like that's where that kind of hustle message has come from like you've just got to change your stars you've just got to be working really hard bullshit though but my feeling is that in pursuing that 247365 what's the cost to that mm. you know we're seeing more and more an increasing rise in um the uh prevalence of mental health pathology we're seeing more and more rise you know it's it's, it's movember this month you know male suicide uh, sorry male cancers uh, you know whatever prostate cancer and all that kind of, is one of the big focuses of movember but also male suicide you know that's one of the huge huge um, things that we're seeing is that you know people are, are ending their own lives and i can't help but think i have, I have no objective evidence to, to demonstrate this off the top of my head but i can't help but think that this this sort of work all hours of the day until you're absolutely exhausted is not a healthy message for young kids um I think that absolutely work smart and you know pursue your dreams and, and work hard for those dreams, but also understand that you need to be able to sleep, you need to be able to nourish your body, you need to be able to move. We are human beings that are meant to be around other human beings in cultures, mm. I'm sorry, in sort of small tribes. Um, that's really, really important. And so I, I get frustrated and almost tired with the message of let's just grind away because my kind of big message is, well, what's the cost to that? So let me ask you, right? Yeah, yeah. I talk to 100,000 young people a year. Do you really? Wow. A year. That's amazing. To be fair, we're probably shortening that now because I, obviously I told you before we're, we're trying to add a lot more value, wow. so we're trying to limit that. What do I need to do? Like what you just said then, to make sure that I do not come across as work hard, work hard. Obviously, this is a Dreams to Reality podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Go after your goals. Go after your dreams. What other elements do I need to be reinforcing what do I need to be sharing? So yesterday, me and Enzo was in, where was we yesterday? Reading? Yeah, in a school in Reading, and we had a group of year nine girls. And these year nine girls were high performers. But the level of anxiety, the level yeah. of stress they're already experiencing, they're not even doing their GCSEs yeah. yet. They feel pressure from the schools, the expectations is all nine, so that's like A stars, yeah. um, pressure from home. And you can see them. And actually, our advice yesterday, we done, I went on a, a mental health first aid course and learned a mm. bit about like, uh, stress tanks and yeah, things yeah. like that. And I broke it down for them and said, you need to start to enjoy yourself a little bit more. Yeah. Because they're all there and they're, they're, they're like giving back to me, but you can just see they're so yeah. like tense. They're so like, yeah. I don't know, it's hard to explain. So I think the first flag to plant is, I think being honest is quite important. So exactly as you said, just giving your story and telling what you're trying to do. Mm. You know, we spoke about it before starting recording and I think what you're doing is amazing. That's a really honest, oh, good, you. it's a good, no, honestly, mate, and take the compliment because it's, oh, it's, it's a good message Cheers. and I think it's a good product and it's a good um, service that you're giving out to young kids that I think need it. So I think that's a, a great thing. And I don't think anyone will ever be able to kind of come back to you with that and be like, oh, you know, but what have you done? It's like, well, what I'm doing now is a fantastic thing and I'm very confident in, in continuing this journey. I will get to a really good place. But it's quick before you go on to the next point yeah. it's about that learning and the growth so I feel like I'm always learning and yeah. growing because if I didn't I would still be giving out a message yeah. of work hard work hard work hard yeah. but because I'm learning and growing and like you said and therefore, that, I think that message to me is much stronger because, mm. you know, and you're doing a great thing when you're recording that journey. So, you know, in two, three, five years from now, 
the message will just be deeper and very, very more, much more robust because people won't be able to kind of rebut that. They'll be saying, oh, what are you talking about, Cam? You're like, well, this is what I've done. This is what I've recorded. This is what I've learned. And this is actually what I feel. And this is what I want to kind of give back to the, mm. to the kind of community. Um, so I think that, that, that definitely you should be honest. Um, and I think that... Y- y- People can trivialize anything, right? Um, you can say, oh, you know, basketball's just popping a ball in a hoop and, you know, rowing just making boats go fast. You can yeah, trivialize. People are like, you, you get paid for how much just to talk? No, but you, but can, like- you can trivialize anything. And, you know, that's not why we're here. Another thing you can flip back to your year nine girls is that, you know, the earth is billions, of, well, the universe is billions of years old. Uh, we're this sort of third rock from the sun. We haven't been around for that long in the grand scheme of things. You're not going to be around that long, mm. you know, whether it's the next 60, 70, 80, 90 years. It's really a tiny little snippet on this kind wow. of mortal yeah. coil. Um, so why do something that you really don't feel either fulfilled or you enjoy or you get some sort of satisfaction out of it? It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, hard work for the sake of hard work or hard work to please someone else. You know, that Steve Jobs phrase of like, don't live your life living someone else's uh, dreams mm. and beliefs. I just think it, it really resonates with me. His um, Harvard speech was amazing. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's the thing, you know, the, the three stories, you mm. know, don't live a life by dogma um, or trapped in dogma or whatever it is. Uh, and I think that's an important message. I mean, it's all quite academic, isn't it, talking about these things? And, and for me, like, the biggest evidence is what someone does. Um, and so I think that people listening to this will need to just do this and they'll need to go out and practice it because you can talk about it all day until you're blue in the face. Mm. But, um, you know, I'm a big believer in kind of you are what you do and you are by the results that you yeah. get. Um, and so I think that those two things are really honest like be honest well maybe three be honest have fun um and just realize that life is quite precious right it's 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 a privilege to be alive um the the old alan watts saying of um you know people think about you know go to school and then university and then go to go, go to a job and then you go up the corporate ladder and then you go and before you know it, you're dead it's like well what if what if life yeah. is was actually like a piece of music and you know you're not trying to get to the end of mozart's requiem you're trying to dance along the way um requiem's not a thing you should dance to by the way but um anyway um it's a sort of death death march but um you know you kind of get what i'm trying to say which is that we're here to kind of enjoy ourselves contribute to the world put value out into the world and if you can capture a bit of that value that means you can earn a living you know quick question yeah we'll come back onto your story that's what we do all the time great i don't want to just reel off your story and then just go from there um you mentioned you don't about somebody say teaching somebody how to grow a million pound business without actually doing it themselves i agree for example if i have a personal trainer i for some reason would want somebody whether it's not just bro science but somebody who's qualified but also living that life to coach me than somebody who's yeah whether i'm right or well, wrong or somebody who say overweight and they might be qualified and they're teaching me that's whether that's right or wrong that's just how i yeah. would portray it but then Actually, break down that. What do well, you- I'm, I'm basically trying to say that I... So, I don't think you have to be an Olympic gold medalist to coach Olympic gold medalists. Yep. I don't think that you need to be an owner of a multi-million pound business to teach people how to run multi-million pound businesses. And I don't think you need to be, like, not overweight to be a personal trainer. Mm. I think that you do need to have relevant experience to be able to coach people into doing something that they want to do. I think so. So, what I'm trying to say is that I really get sick of seeing people, mainly Mm. on social media, that are (laughs) coaching or trying to help people where they have no first-hand experience or very little first-hand experience themselves. Um, They haven't done those things themselves and they don't really have any experience with uh, anyone that's done those things themselves. 
but they've sort of self-justified it because they've got a message that sounds good and they've got traction with some you know mm. followers that's what i get really frustrated and that's with. the difference that's why i'm working in schools at the moment and not corporates mm. i do a little bit of corporate but i mainly do schools because that's the market i relate to yeah and just to back up your point and why i completely agree with you who's the new england patriots head coach uh, well, I know Bill Belichick has left. Is he leaving? Has he left? Is he, is he still, he's, still I there? I think he's still there. Oh, fine, so how many ages. Super Bowls does he have? Five, six, seven? Is I don't it know. six or seven? Yeah. A huge amount. Six, yeah. Does he look like he could play American football in the NFL? Well, yeah, no. Well, he, I mean, probably. He might have done as a young son. I don't know his life I don't story. Think, but does that make sense? But he's one of the most successful coaches ever. Yeah, so yeah. So even though he's not the not a quarterback or can't be a running back, doesn't mean that he can't coach or train. But then I think what you the validation and the experience he's gained throughout the way yeah. justifies him to be in that position as the coach. Yeah, I mean, what, what I'm basically saying is you can't go from watching American football, well, I don't think, anyway, you could probably go from watching American football on the sidelines yeah. to then the Patriots when Bill leaves going, hey, guy sitting on the sofa or lady, <laughs> lady sitting on the sofa, like, yeah. do you want to come and lead our six-time you know, Super Bowl winning yeah. team? It's just not going to happen. No, it's you know? not. Um, so, I mean, but that doesn't mean you can't go and start coaching football somewhere and learn your trade and get better at it. And absolutely, you may be coaching I know a loads, I know loads of, um, well, not loads, but I know a few English coaches over in America now because they started coaching over here. Yeah, then great. they went to like a Division Three in America, started coaching there, and then they slowly D2, D1. Yeah. And, and it snowballed from and then there. You're away. So bring it back to uni. You're yeah. 2021. What's yeah, uh, I think 2021, I've probably been invited into the Olympic squad so uh the way i wow. so my um my journey kind of really took up another notch when i was going into clinical medicine so basically into hospital and doing all that kind of you know learning how to be a doctor as well as doing all the study in the human body and at the same time you know beijing had just finished and quite a lot of people retired beijing's 2008, beijing was 2008 yeah. yeah so what tends to happen in, in olympic sports unlike kind of football where every year like some people retire so there's quite a, a steady sort of efflux and influx of footballers um in olympic sports maybe similar to rugby but not quite the same every four years there's a kind of mass efflux so people are like i'm, I'm going to retire I, I don't really want to commit for another four years because mm. you've got to sort of sign up to you know so four, four year drop chunks. Off, well you don't you don't have to but that's what mm. is is seen um people go well i'm not going to do london so i might as well hang up my oar now um so there was about 10 10 guys and obviously a heavyweight men's team was where i was trying to get to 10 guys i think probably retired uh, and i was a sort of a young chap kind of working his way through the ranks and and Jürgen said, you know, he was willing to give me a chance. And was it um, a phone call? What was it? Did no, you, yeah, so did it, you see it coming? Like how? Um, so it, it was a bit more gradual. So I'd I'd already won an under twenty three world championship medal, um, wow. which okay. was which was cool. Where was that? Uh, so I won that over in actually Strathclyde in two thousand seven, and then did the under twenty three world champs in um, in Brandenburg in Germany. And so, I mean, that's a kind of a story I haven't spoken about more. But so I fractured my rib in between the semi-final and the final in the World Championships. How? Rowing. Um, just pulling really hard. Wow. <laughs> um, so I, I fractured my rib. Was ri- it in the race? Yeah. So it got a little bit worse in the heat. Uh, I just felt something go in the heat. Um, mm. And so I normally row on bow side, which is where the oar is going to your sort of left, mm. like, like that. And for this year, I just switched to the other side. So my body was not quite used to it. Obviously, I'd only done it for a couple of years. just wasn't quite used to it. Mm. Um, and it was quite choppy in the heat, so like lots of waves and stuff. And I was working really hard trying to get through, obviously, to the semifinals. I just felt something kind of go around my kind of, so 
medics or people that like sort of T10 to mm. T11 and T9 to T11, so like sort of mid-thoracic. Um, I just felt it really kind of twinge. I couldn't shake it. Um, and I was breathing and it was painful and I was like, this isn't great. So obviously saw the physios, dosed up on some painkillers, some anti-inflammatories, and then um, we sort of made the call, well, we need to do the semi-final because, uh, you know, if we don't get through that, it's just sort of this boat that arrived and didn't do anything. So I sort of got strapped up, did the semi-final. We made the final, which was great, but I was in, like, excruciating pain, and I was quite worried. Obviously, being a medic, you start to go through the worst yeah. things that can happen. Like, have I given myself a pneumothorax, like air in between the chest cavity and the lung? You know, there's a guy called Alex Partridge in 2004 that had that. Um, you know, have I, have I done something really bad? Mm. I just couldn't breathe. I couldn't sleep. Um, and so we made the sad, unfortunate decision that, you know, it wasn't just me. I was there with three other guys. If I was there in the final, you know, at sort of 50% capacity, like, we're going to come last, right? Because, I mean, the, the races are won and lost mm. by t- small little bits. Um, and so I got pulled for the final because I was injured. And, um, and the guys ended up, ended up coming sixth anyway with a, with a sub. So because there was a new person in the boat, and obviously you're racing the best in the world, even though it's like you're not quite you're you're sort of in the race Mm. you're not going to be other countries who are the best at what they do right um so i kind of went through a period of kind of almost remolding and it was like well hang on they've tracked me right through from a nine so 18 19 year old i'm now 20 21 i've gone from nothing to i'm about to go into an olympic program you know 25 hours of training a week plus 25 hours of recovery seven days a week um we can get to that if you want um how am i going to cope with that you know also whilst doing a kind of medical degree and so i went through a good sort of four months of, of rehab uh a guy called darren whiter who's a really celebrated coach he won the olympics in beijing he gave me a kind of program on the bike um and i had a physio called uh, julia heady of judy church um she's yeah amazing she kind of rehabbed my rib and made me very kind of stable serratus anterior function made sure that was very good i spent hours and hours on the pilates reformer just got bulletproof um and then four months after that, I pulled 5.51 on a 2K as a 21-year-old. Mm. And everyone was like, who the hell is this guy? Mm. Um, and that for me, that kind of almost like rebirth from a kind of young adolescent that was just kind of almost in kind of gear four at the top of gear four going, mm. uh, just gave myself gear five and gear six by rehabbing and making my body much stronger. Wow. Um, and then I got invited into the Olympic team and kind of progressed. How was that? Um, it was what? Well, how was the Olympic team? Yeah, being invited, representing um, your country. It, was it everything you wanted it to be, or was you just so goal focused that it was just like I knew this was going to yeah. happen? Part of the process. No, it was. Um, it was great, and I guess it's probably the biggest kind of shape shaping of my life in the sense that um, I'm in danger. I'm, I'm in danger. I'm continu- continuously in danger of, of moving goalposts. So before mm. I started rowing. I just wanted to get good at rowing. Mm. And then as soon as I kind of got okay at rowing, I was like, oh, I quite like to row for the University of London. And then I was like, oh, I'm doing that. I quite like to win Henley. I did that. And all of a sudden it kind of spiraled. And by the time I was getting invited into the team, it was like, well, I want to win the Olympics. Mm. Um, Looking back at it now, you know, sort of going from never knowing what rowing is to like, Two, two years later thinking I've got to win the Olympics or I'm a failure just it's an odd mindset wow. um, to have so I had some of the best of times you know winning world championship medals on the big stage you know in 2010 2011 uh, we got silver medals at the world championships which still remains you know my best rowing achievements really enjoyed winning those with those group of guys um, so how old are you if you don't mind me asking uh, 32 now so 32 yeah yeah and then um I did the London 2012 Olympics and sadly just in that year I had a bumpy year that rib came back 
Um, and so I missed out on Olympic trials then, and I couldn't put in the performance mm. that I wanted to get in the eight. So for the games, I was selected into the team, which was great. Um, but I was in that spare pair slot. So I was basically kind of on the subs bench mm. for the eight. So I was still there with the team. Uh, we did our race kind of, you know, the day before the heats, uh, which was fun. It was great. Nice to race. And it was great to be a part of the team. Great to then go into the village in the second week and kind of, you know, yeah, we're imagine. doing the Olympics. It's amazing. Um, and so for me, it was just a, a lovely kind of, it was kind of closure for me, I guess, being in my kind of home capital, London, the parades through London with all the floats. Mm, um, and I it sort imagine. Of represented this kind of weird detour where as an 18-year-old, I kind of, I went to medical mm. school literally two blocks from Tra- Trafalgar Square. Um, well, maybe a bit more, 10 blocks from Tra- Trafalgar Square. And I sort of finished that four-year journey um, parading through the streets of London to Trafalgar Square. And I remember asking for permission from medical lecturers, like, oh, can I, um, can I have the afternoon off? I've got to go and parade around London. And then, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I went back to medical school, finished off the degree. And, and So you went back? Was you still doing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side? So I, I, I got to a stage about two years out from the Games where... I, I had to pause my medical studies. So you paused it? Yeah. I, I went part-time for a year, was it a year or two, um, where I was doing very, very um, small amounts of medicine. Um, I don't, need, don't want to know money or anything, but yeah. how does the Olympics work when you represent Great Britain? Do you yeah, no, it's a good bursary, question. Do you get bursaries? Do you it's get... a good question. So if you ha- it's, it's an all-or-nothing game. So you have to, it's a kind of a bit of a catch-22. You've got to be in the team to be able to justify that you should be funded. Okay. And so there is a there is a, a national funding program for our Olympic athletes. So that's yeah. ring-fenced money that's largely funded by the, the lottery, the national lottery. Um, there's a small amount of government money there, but it's mainly na- lottery funding. Um, so, you know, everyone's paying their euro millions, or maybe not, but, you know, the mm. national lottery um, funds that. Uh, it's... I would say of probably akin to about a graduate salary if you're winning world championship medals. Um, when I started uh, out, or if you're sort of not winning world championship m- medals, it's like a few hundred pounds a month, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. which doesn't even cover rent mm-hmm. if you're in London. So you really kind of do it as a bit of a vocation. And so some people sign up for a, an Olympiad. Some people sign up for two Olympiads. Um, and I know so, I had some friends who'd like two, three Olympiads and just you know, didn't quite make yeah. it and so it really is because you want to win the Olympics and that becomes your your big goal um, so it's it's definitely not a, a not a profession or a sport that people go into chasing fancy cars and you know, blingy watches so the Olympics 2012 yeah how was that um, it was amazing I've got no reference point I guess as an athlete because it's the only Olympics I did mm. um, it was a kind of bittersweet moment for me because 2012 how old was you uh, God, how old was I in 2012? Well, I was born in 87, so that makes me um, 25. Yeah, 25. So, um, yeah, so I was 25 in wow. 1912. 25. Um, yeah, so, um, so I was relatively young compared to some of my peers, mm. but, you know, there's a chap called Stan Leloudis, who I think he was 20 in London, so he's really, really young. Mm. And then he went on to win in Rio, so he was 24, only one. So, We've had some young people win, win good medals. Um, but also, so my pair's partner for that Olympiad basically was a guy called Greg Sell. He was 40 in London. So it was kind of a big, big spread wow. of ages. Yeah, his story is amazing. So he won the Olympics, I think, as a 20-ish-year-old in 92. And then did a few Olympics, <laughs> took 10 years out, and then wanted to come back to, wow. to chase his dreams of winning that, winning that other gold medal. So um, anyway, that's a bit of a detour. But it, it was amazing for me because it was in my capital, like where mm. I was studying, where I was living... Um, and it was just a massive celebration about being British. 
Um, and I was just, there a good vibe around it though? Because I think it was, if I go to Olympics, I want to go to Brazil. Or yeah, like I guess so. Yeah, I didn't go to Rio. Uh, <laughs> not as even as a spectator. Everyone said that Rio was amazing in terms of the games. Mm. Um, it was some iconic locations of the Lagoa, wherever they where, yeah. they, where they rode was amazing. Uh, the parties were great in the second week. So rowing's in the first week, and then so it means that we're quite lucky that the second week we can kind of enjoy watching mm. events and partying. Um, it was unsafe compared to London, I think. I had a few scary stories, which I won't, won't repeat here. Um, people having to go out on twos and threes. To, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they, uh, they had a different experience out there. I just thought it was fantastic the way that Lowcog and the people behind the London Olympics just ran it. It was, I couldn't fault it really at any level. Um, slightly biased perspective, perspective as an athlete, but it was just amazing. Um, you know, I've got those are my closing ceremony shoes actually up on the wall, which is the um, the white shoes. I just yeah. got everyone at the closing ceremony just going around and sign it. But I've got a little plaque on there which just says we did it right, uh, and that was kind of from Lord Coe's speech where he's like, you know, when we look back on these two weeks, you know, we can be proud to say we did it right, and I really feel like we did um at every level even from the kind of the volunteers and the games makers it was just a real celebration i think of sport but also of just kind of being londoners and being british Mm. Uh, and i I thought it was a fantastic time i don't know if everyone remembers but we were quite nervous because building up to the olympics in london there was a lot of chat about oh you know it's going to cost eight billion pounds and like oh it's going to be crap we're british we're going to lose and then we won the first medal which i think was a cycle i think it was one of the cyclists the road cyclists i think olympic silver and then of course we had helen and heather win on i think it was the saturday which was kind of the super saturday and then we had like super sunday and then just a super Mm. two weeks and we had if you take rio away our most successful olympics ever at london and that kind of legacy was... Is that when, is it Jessica Ennis? Was yeah, that she done? Jessica Ennis, Greg Rutherford, Mo Farah, yeah. uh, I think the men's four, women's pair. Yeah, we were, I think, five or six gold medals, maybe it was five gold medals mm. on that Saturday. Um, and that was amazing, The to see that kind of legacy being born, because obviously, you know, six years out, you kind of know that London's going to be there. That was probably a little factor in my mind as well, being mm. like, oh, you know, the London Olympics, it's a little seed planted. Um, but then seeing us better that performance at Rio was fantastic because... You can you can just see that the, the growth in Olympic sport is very. In, in fact, I think it's the only time, I think, off the top of my head, that a host nation. Normally, if you look at Olympic performance, the host nation, so Sydney, the Australian Olympic team peaks mm. and then they come back down to their kind of normal performance. You know, Beijing, China peaks and they mm. come back down. London, we kind of peaked, and then Rio, we had a better performance, wow. which I think is the first time that's ever been done. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in Tokyo. So, tell us. How did the races go, 2012? Uh, it was great. I mean, so my race, I raced, raced in the spare pairs race before, heat, before the heat started. Yeah. So I basically got that done. We won that, which was, which was fun. Um, the races were, were great. There was a real mixed bag of results. So we, the women and lightweights did fantastic. Um, they won uh, a number of gold medals. I think they had uh, two gold medals and two silver medals, mm. which was amazing. Uh, the heavyweight men did well i think we got a bronze medal in the single skull from alan campbell we got a bronze medal in the men's pair which is amazing and a bronze medal in the men's eight mm. which at the time i think the group of guys were quite quite disappointed with um but i think looking back they realized like what a great achievement that was definitely uh, and then obviously the men's four which was the kind of the it's become a bit of a british blue ribbon event they won that um so i think overall that we were the top olympic nation uh for rowing um and yeah it was a kind of real party atmosphere i guess so let's let's 
why have you retired from rowing? If you had a, if you had a partner who was 40 and <laughs> yeah. you're only 32. Yeah, yeah good question. Um, and physically, anyway, from what I see and obviously what you do anyway, you're yeah. a beast as well. <laughs> so so why, why did you retire from rowing? I mean, for a, a few things. The, the first is I had a difficult experience in that year. So I, I didn't win an Olympic medal. I didn't get in the boat I wanted to get into, which was the eight. Um, you know, we didn't win the Olympics. It was a sort of, it was great to be there in a party atmosphere and I loved it, but I didn't quite achieve so what I wanted disappointed? to do. Oh yeah, I was definitely disappointed. How did that affect you? Um, well, I, I guess in the only way I knew how, which was kind of <clears throat> just moving forward. Um, and I was at a stage with my medical career where I still had, I think, two or three years left to finish. Because, uh, you know, I remember that, the beginning mm. six years right so I still had a couple of years to finish um, and I just didn't really want to not be a doctor and just you know have this degree hanging over me that I think I would have always regretted had I not gone back and finished my medical degree and pursued that career um, I could have stayed on to Rio but it would have meant costing my medical career because I think I would have had to have probably started again if I took like four yeah, years out right um, so I, I finished I finished my medical degree and to be honest I didn't really miss lots of the rowing I missed the start line I missed the racing but I didn't really miss the mm. you know the 25 hours a week of you know, sitting on the rowing machine and at the same time as my medical degree I'd started this thing called rowing ward and I'd started being in the fitness industry and I was doing CrossFit and I was doing all these kind of fun things and I really just didn't miss it uh, and so that was the kind of compass for me that I felt like I kind of almost it felt right for me to, not to go back to rowing um have you got closure with rowing so say not winning a medal and stuff in 2012 would you say you got closure or would you say it still bugs you today because it's, it's not that long ago let's be honest no it's not it's not that you're, long ago you're right i mean be honest i think i think no is probably the honest answer i don't think i don't look back on my rowing career and think i've achieved all i wanted to achieve with it because mm. i wanted to win the olympics um but also, I'm not sure, and where I am in my life is I'm content at the moment doing the things that I'm doing. I know, and I've you know I've had friends who've gone on to win the Olympics and who've just missed out several times. I've had people who've like come back from you know retirement, what have you, at different points in their career, like ten years away, one year Are away. You saying you're coming back? No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But what, what I'm trying to breaking de- news. No. He's coming back. <laughs> what I'm trying to demonstrate is that you know it's always a thought that retired athletes have is like when you see the Olympic racing, you're like, oh, that's amazing. I want to go back. But there's a cost to that, oh, right? It's a huge cost. Yeah, and, and similar to what I was talking about before with the kind of the hustle culture and the cost to that, the cost to winning, the price of winning Olympic medals is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of training and recovery and the things you miss out on, the parties away, seeing friends, going on holidays. And for me, you know, I've got a young son, 18 months old. I don't really want to say, no, we can't go on that holiday. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that's where I am in my life. So... Looking back, I'm very, very happy and content that I gave it everything and I gave my best. Um, I didn't achieve what I ended up wanting to achieve right at the end. But if you'd have told me as an 18-year-old, mate, if you try this rowing thing, you'll be going and parading through the streets of London and being an Olympic rower after going to London 2012. I'd have bitten your hand off, right? And so it's a big lesson for me, kind of like moving goalposts. Mm. And it's something that I do naturally that I'm, I'm very aware of. So back to medical school. Yeah. How was your final two, three years, do you say? Yeah, it was great. Um, so I, I think it's a natural thing I do, which is that whenever there's a slight amount of time back in my life, I sort of fill it quite quickly. Mm. So all of a sudden I wasn't doing 25 hours a week of training. I was like, oh, what else do I do? Um, so I, I started to dabble in the world of entrepreneurialism or entrepreneurship. Um, I started a company called Decepra, which was a kind of 
a uh, it was sta- standard for dis- disque sicare pracise or whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was to learn to cut precisely. So you still at medical school? I was still at medical school, yeah, okay. and uh, entered into this thing called the London Entrepreneurs Challenge, and we won that. So we got five grand's worth of seed funding to create um, a training organisation that taught uh, surgeons how to perform keyhole surgery using wow. virtual reality. Okay, so it's pretty cool. Um, so that was a fun little like side hustle that I did for a bit. Um, it didn't really go anywhere because. In fact, I realized that the business we created wasn't necessary. They could yeah. just kind of go straight B2B. So I did that. And I just started to see that there was a lot happening in the world of fitness. Um, and I was falling in love with a thing called CrossFit, yeah, a thing know. called founded by Greg Glassman. And I love picking up these new sort of skills. So learning how to walk on my hands, doing like muscle ups, um, you know, climbing. What about a culture though? The so culture. That, well, I actually really liked it. So, so because from, the from cross, my, CrossFit yeah. got crucified and it came to begin. Just, everyone just hated on it. Did it? To begin with, like, I felt like people just like, oh, if people do CrossFit, everyone says, oh, they yeah. let you know they do CrossFit. But I'm thinking it's like, it's, it's a positive movement, man. Like, yeah. How, like, it doesn't matter what the people are like. If it's getting people into exercise, yeah. getting into people living healthy, and there's a positive culture where they yeah. want to go to the gym, Instead of just being in the mirror doing I mean, deadlifts and yeah. looking at everyone angrily. And so I, uh, my, my opinion is that I think Greg Glassman has changed the fitness industry for the better oh, forever. 100%. And I think what he's fundamentally done is shifted the focus from... Um, aesthetics to performance mm. um, you know I grew up in this book there you know Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding as a young I was like yeah I want to be, you know, be massive and strong and like be, having all those metaphors and um, you know we've seen yeah. on, on social media the women you know I'm a fitness pro are you but all, all your posts are of your, you know, your butt in these leggings. You know, there's quite a huge aesthetic focus to the fitness <laughs> yeah. industry. I think, it's particularly, you know, and Photoshop, fifteen, fifteen <laughs> years ago. Um, and you know, from from me as an athlete, but also as a, you know, a budding doctor, I thought this is this is valuable. You know, getting people off the couch and moving their bodies, um, you know, fueling their bodies correctly. I was like, this is massively valuable for for healthcare, let alone fitness. Mm. Um, but from a performance point of view, I was like, well, this this is amazing. No longer are we thinking. You know, the questions aren't like, oh, you know, double bicep pose or how much can you bench? It's like, what's your Fran time? What's Fran? Or oh, it's like doing these like pull-ups and thrusts. And you're like, oh, this is quite cool. Mm. Um, and I loved it because it was bloody hard. So I had a specific skill set as a rower, which was, you know, posterior chain mm. driven movements, triple extension, anything that looked a bit like rowing, basically, I was pretty good at. Um, and anything that wasn't, I sucked at. And as I demonstrated to you before, I'm, I don't like being wrong. I don't like being not mm. so good at things. And I just had this journey of learning new movements, getting fitter by CrossFit's definition of being able to do more stuff. Um, and I just thought it was a fantastic community that, you know, they welcomed me in with both arms uh, because of my unique knowledge that I was now, you know, okay at doing CrossFit. I'm and Rowan's quite And I knew the sport. Exactly. The, the, the rowing machine featured quite heavily when I started about 2013, mm. 2014. Um, and so I, I was very fortunate to go around um, speaking to uh, lots of different CrossFitters and working with elite CrossFitters, uh, teaching them how to row, basically, and how to row a bit more effectively so that they get, get more out of the machine. And that, that's basically where Rowing Wad was born from, which was trying to create a structured and scientific program that allowed people that were interested in fitness yeah main skew to crossfitters to get better on the machine so they could get faster yes but also they could get fitter and then Mm. have this kind of movement journey about learning how to move correctly just like i had from knowing how to do gymnastics or weightlifting Um, and i thought it was really important for us as a sport in rowing to be able to shine the light on how good and how valuable this movement is for the human body Um, so that's kind of where it started it's sort of run from there basically 
Good. Is that something you? Oh, oh so, okay. all right. We're, we're just, can we cut that? Yeah, Great. Right. Cool. I was making sure I was like, yeah. is there only one minute <laughs> left on the battery or something? Like, <laughs> all good. Okay, good. Um, okay, so would you say you're particularly passionate about medicine still? Is that something you're... Because let's be honest, going into uni and doing something for six, seven years, yeah. and it's an ongoing process of learning, that is difficult. Yeah, it is. To that level. Yeah. What drives you for that? So take away rowing, take away fitness. Let's focus a little bit on uh, medicine. Let's focus on becoming sure. a doctor. Sure. Why was that important to you? I think it's always been important to me, and without sounding a bit too cheesy, to help others and making them happier and healthier. Mm. Uh, I loved science and I loved problem solving, as you've kind of mm. heard. And so for me, medicine seemed like a really cool career to be able to do that. I think my idea of hell would be like working in an office, crunching mm, numbers all the time. I agree. Um, and I like working with different people and I've been, I love working with teams and I just sort of saw medicine as a pretty cool thing to be able to do. And also kind of, for me as a kind of valuable skill set. I just, I thought, you know, what's more valuable than knowing how to save someone's life. I was like, that's pretty, pretty bloody cool. Mm. Um, (laughs) and so, yeah. And so I spent all that time (laughs) studying and I still continuously am learning and practicing medicine. It's, I think it's a real privilege. Um, but it's also a bit of a difficult time. I'm not sure if you know uh, about what's happening in medicine where, you know, the chronic underfunding of the health service Mm. for a number of years, When I had my first year as a practicing doctor, there was junior doctor strikes all over the country because the government were trying to force, and they have continued to force this um, contract on junior doctors. So there's a quite a big, a big time going on for medicine where no one really knows what's going to happen. Um, the people who are quite clever within the industry are thinking this may not survive 10 years mm. genuinely it may not survive as we know it uh, we're talking about even the leaders debate of Corbyn versus Johnson you heard them saying that you know Labour are preaching that the Tories are going to sell off the NHS to America there's a lot of big sh- seismic shifts going on in medicine um, and so so for, much uncertainty well and so for me as an individual looking after my family I realised that actually I needed to be able to support my family if medicine changed seismically and I was caught out so um, for me that's yeah. why I've sort of wow. I've, I've diversified so I've got a business that can support my family if I need to. Wow. I've got a skill set that can also support myself, you know, potentially as a speaker or consulting on startups oh, and things like that. Um, and I'm always very interested in new things and, and side projects. So I, I, I saw that as de-risking myself as a doctor. I saw too many of my friends being, you know, registrar or consultant level, tethered to a salary, tethered to a paycheck, tethered to a hospital. And I was like, well, what happens if the government just forces a 20% pay cut on you? Or what happens if they say you have to do this and impose that? It's like, that seems quite risky to me. So in 2015 that wow, was where I needed to make unreal. a bit of a, a bit of a unreal. kind of change so I still work as a doctor and I still love working as a doctor most of the time what frustrates me is when what I would call the clunkiness of the system and doctors listening to this or people in the healthcare profession will, will know what I mean by that um, and I think that needs to be changed but at the heart of it, I still love what the NHS stands for, which is that it's free at the point of access. And what that means is that if you fall down on the street, if you get cancer, if your baby is in trouble, the government, the health service will pick you up because you're a British citizen and it will, it will sort you out. The NHS is incredible. You always get people who moan about the NHS. You yeah. always go into, aren't you? Yeah. But the fact is, when something is serious, it is... But it also costs, right? So, oh. I mean... It's the annual spend of the NHS. This is not not investment, right? This is just to keep the lights on. That's 120 billion pounds. Oh my so 120,000 million pounds every year just to keep the lights on, and it's growing every year. I can imagine. A, how many people do you reckon the NHS employs? Any ideas? Off the top of my head, yeah. I'm probably gonna sound. 
50,000 people. That's what I used to think as well. One and a half million people are employed by the NHS. <laughs> it's the figu- f- fifth, biggest, <laughs> wow. fifth biggest employer worldwide, right? After like McDonald's and Walmart and places like that. The fifth? Fifth, globally. Biggest wow. employer of people. So you think, well, hang on, this is a massive, massive resource. This is a massive asset that we have. Um, you know, like I, I jumped on a box and cut my leg open in the States and it cost $2,000, you know, to, to get it sewn up. You know, I've had friends that have been, you know, they've gone over and had emergency surgery and thankfully they've had insurance, but those are like $50,000 um, oh, bills. Mate. I mean, what we have in the NHS is, is globally unique and it's something that we need to protect. Um, but understand that also it's incredibly difficult for the workers that are working in it because of the chronic underfunding for oh, a number of imagine. years. Um, but it's something that we need to fight for. And it's, it's one of those things, right, where if, if I think the phrase is something like if good people stand by and do nothing for too long, before long it will be just it will be gone. Mm. And I think that that's it's what we're seeing now is that we need more and more people, more and more good people. I mean, much cleverer and much smarter than I am and much more kind of within the industry to figure that out. Um, and so one of the really good things, I guess, whilst, whilst we're on the topic is, um, so this is my second year of being what's called an NHS clinical entrepreneur. So there's a guy called Professor Tony Young, who's head of, uh, I think he's the clinical lead for innovation in the NHS. And he started a program called the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program because he realized that there was a lot of great people leaving medicine because of the clunkiness in the system, because of this risk that I'd spotted, like, well, I'm not sure if I want to be here in 10 years. And he said, well, let's find all these doctors that are doing amazing things outside of medicine as well as inside of medicine. Let's find all of these amazing clinicians, pharmacists, physios, healthcare professionals that have spotted ways in which the system is a bit clunky and have refined it. And let's round them up into a group called the Clinical Entrepreneurs. And so I'm a clinical entrepreneur and I continue to be one. Uh, for me, rowing was a bit of a fitness venture, but it's also got a health component to it where mm, we can get you, you know, fitter course. and healthier, um, you know, total body time efficient movement, etc. But there's amazing clinical entrepreneurs that are doing things like the company called Touch Surgery, which is like the Google Maps of your body. So mm. rather than going in like practicing on bodies straight away as step one and potentially making a mistake, cutting an artery and killing someone, sort of a, a, a big example but it's a digital representation of the body so you can go and kind of go and learn the mm. blueprint do the journey before you go into theatre wow. that's an example uh, there's a chap called uh, Dr. Rupi I can't remember Rupi's last name Adru, I can't even pronounce it yeah he's got a, a account called The Doctor's Kitchen okay. um, and he, he's you know, a massive advocate for nutritional medicine I think he would call it which is that how we fuel our bodies is incredibly important and it can actually have wow. you know, profound health benefits so I think there's, there's, there's a lot of good people in the NHS working hard day to day providing for their families and providing for their patients and making sure that patient safety is is adhered to um, and championed but there's also fantastic innovators and I think that we need more and more of this to Mm. help really look after this massive asset that we have as a country let's talk a little bit about your success or whether you see it as any type of success but how do you execute on such a high level on a daily basis not just in your job yeah but in every because tell me if i'm wrong but when i look at you you've got your shit together man family your own business your also your job as well your own personal health yeah you seem like it's a juggling act but you're balancing everything which looks amazing obviously that doesn't happen overnight yeah but how do you execute on 
every single level at such a high standard. Whether it's, it doesn't matter whether it's hundred percent every single day, but still, if you're operating between seventy and hundred percent on a consistent yeah. basis, that's impressive. I mean, I guess the honest answer is I don't. I don't execute. I don't think that I have the day that you think I probably have. I, I don't wake up at five and have a 10 minute meditation practice and then go and do <laughs> my top 10 optimal task. And like my, my, my day doesn't look like a highlight reel of the most successful people in the world. I'm, I guess I'm pretty normal. Mm. Um, I, I, I like to think I'm pretty normal in that I get joy out of the simple pleasures in life. I like working out. Um, I like eating good food. Uh, I like spending time with my family and I like feeling secure and for me, security, I kind of almost dial it down to three things, which is if I can do meaningful work, have meaningful relationships and be financially free, I'm pretty content. Mm. And so I, it's a continuous process for me. You know, I'm 32 now. I've, I've worked hard all of my life that I can remember. And it's only really in the last couple of years that I've tried to work a lot smarter. Um, so I've definitely done my time in the sense of waking up mm. early and, and trying to do that kind of hustle culture. Um, but I mean, a typical day, for instance, you know, today I'm not in medicine, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the different things uh, that, I, that I need to do in the week. So I'm preparing for a seminar that I'm doing on Sunday. Uh, this morning, I walked the dog like a normal dad or normal sort of family member. Saw my son in the morning. We had normal breakfast together with my mm. wife. Um, I, what we're doing this is a kind of thing that popped up. We've had it in the diary yeah. for a couple of weeks. I've got some meetings later on. I'm going to do some emails. I'm going to get through a chunk of work. Uh, I'll do a little bit of learning, you know, maybe listen to another podcast or something like that. It's, it's pretty routine, but what I took away from my time as an athlete is that, you know, that, that phrase that Jürgen said, you know, there are no shortcuts. It's just about showing up and consistently doing it. Mm. And so the biggest thing I took away, I, I guess, from, um, from London is when I was speaking to other athletes, so I was very, very, um, I guess, out there as a, as a 25-year-old. I had no qualms about being going up to sort of Mo Farrell or Michael Phelps and just trying to have a, have a chat. Um, those two specific examples didn't quite work. They just sort of said, oh, can we have a photo? Great. See you later. Um, yeah. <laughs> but speaking to people who you know these amazing sprint cyclists that massive legs and like bloody powerful small little like distance runners people who are at the top of the game of what they do i realized pretty quickly that these acts of greatness that we witness so just what you sort of saying to mm. me like you see this person that's really successful um which is great i, I don't massively feel successful at the moment um but it's not built upon a single act it's mm. just they've decided wow. to show up day in day out day in day out day in day out and getting just like kind of maybe one percent better wow. and there's a lovely little graph that um circled around and like james clear is an author um written, i think atomic habits in, oh yeah okay yeah. the american uh yeah he's, a, he's an american chap there's yeah. another american uh, guy called ben bergeron who coaches some early crossfitters it's a nice graphic which just kind of shows what happens if you accumulate or compound one percent per day and you go for like 10 years, mm. you end up at like four, five, six hundred percent, maybe wow. more, better. Yeah. And it's just showing up every day and just trying to practice more often doing the things right than not. Because it's so easy just to sort of say, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just watch that like, Netflix episode or like, oh, I'll just... I'll just have another cake or what have you. So easy to. It is easy. But the cost, again, the, the price you pay for that is that you'll wake up in 10 years time and potentially regret the things that you didn't do. People, as we, we talk about, people value um, comfort over valuing growth. Yeah, but it's natural. It's biologically ingrained, yeah. right? You have your dopaminergic pathways, which release dopamine. So like you, you hit a bit of sugar, a bit of fat, you get an instant satisfaction. So that delayed gratification mm. is a real kind of killer because it's so hard to figure out... Um, that if you just 
put yourself in a little bit of discomfort now that has meaning to it. I'm not saying like, you know, stab yourself in the arm or what have you, or like, you know, put some fire in it. Like, don't just mm. make yourself uncomfortable for the sake of it. But if you try and pursue something that will, the, the attached price to that is discomfort now, mm. it will mo- more likely than not have payoff later down the line. So would you say you're in a bit of where you're, you've paid off some of your hard work you've done, say over the last, um, you're 32 now, say over the last 10 years, right? So now I come here, you've got a beautiful house, you've got your family. Would you say you're at a time now you cannot relax because you're not relaxing because you're working still very hard, yeah. but you're more in control of the, your time than actually time in control of you? Uh, good question. My wife and I, I think, have, so we've been together since I was 18, so it's been a long wow. time. Yeah, we've been married for uh, six years and I've been together, we've been together now for what? 15? Wow, uh, you've really grown together. Well, yeah, but we've been very good, I think, is continuing to work on our relationship, but also um, work on our lifestyle. So Mm. we've tried to engineer our lives, right? So um, we think really we think a lot about what our weeks look like and what our days look like. We don't really think about like where we want to be in five years or where we want to be in three years. Got you. But we try and change about... Consistency like, again. Yeah, like exactly. Exactly. It's like, well, what does Friday look like? What does is, what is this week look like? And we're sort of thinking, well, what is, what is Christmas going to look like? That's sort of six weeks away. Like, mm. what, what do I actually want to get out of that phase? We're definitely not perfect. And, um, and we always have our disagreements and, you know, things don't work all, all the time. Um, but we are trying to constantly trying to figure out what, what that week looks like. So I think I've got to a place now where I would say I'm, I'm <coughs> content, but I'm not pleased with how my week looks like. I think there's a few more things that I'd like to... So con- do, you, do you set goals? Um, I, no, I don't anymore. I used to. Um, That's interesting. I used okay. to. I so I stopped doing New Year's resolutions about two years ago. Yeah. Just because I would I would achieve them and then not feel as much satisfaction from them as I thought I would. Um, I might go and try and set goals again in the future. Or do you set goals in your head without my goals? Put, I don't without I, even putting them down. So as you said, your goalposts move. So probably in your yeah, head, you still got. So I think one of the big things I've done in the last year that's much better is, uh, so I, I've got a coach that I work with um, to kind of reflect back to me, like hold a mirror up to, to, to what I'm doing. Uh, so that's something I'm, I'm much more aware of. The goals that I set now are, are, are less material. And material, I don't mean like buying a car or something mm, like that. I mean, yeah. you know, for me, getting a degree, getting an Olympic medal, those are quite tangible, finite goals. And they're quite easy to kind of plot back from. Um, I have things that I want to do. So, you know, I have certain training. I guess you'd call them training goals that I want to get to. But it's not like I want to hit this number. Do you want to compete at CrossFit? I mean, I enjoy competing at CrossFit. Um, and I have enjoyed competing at CrossFit in the past. I, I like doing that when I'm fit. And so one of the things that's taken a back seat for me in the last sort of probably year since you know, figuring out family life is my fitness. It's, I'm definitely less fit than I used to be. So if now for me, definitely fitness is I, I want to improve my fitness because mm. I've always seen a positive compounding with that in my life. So that's something I'm going to get back to. Um, professionally for me, I'm not quite, quite where I want to be. I do, I do many things where I really want to kind of focus on doing, I think, one thing really well that yeah. touches on many things. Yeah, I so you. I was still learning lots as a 
you know, I guess the other thing to reflect back to is that you know, since the Olympics and since qualifying as a doctor, I've only really been in the world of work for four or five years. Yeah. So if you think that back to as a kind of someone coming out of school, that's like a 22, 23 year old, um, or someone finishing a three year degree, that's like a 25, 26 year old. So at 32, I still feel pretty hungry for the professional world and, and learning how the world works and coming out of this kind of bubble as an athlete and bubble mm-hmm. as a medic. Um, so I still feel like there's a lot that I want to learn. There's a lot of more people I want to meet. I want to learn how different businesses work, how different industries work. Um, so I'm quite interested. But I think for me to, you know, heading to, I guess, the journey of being 40, which is, God forbid, in like eight years' time, I'm kind of using these next eight years as really making sure that I protect and have boundaries around my family life, but also have uh, a real compounding, like an upwards compounding journey for my professional skills mm. um, and to try to understand how I can really add value into the world and a kind of consequence of that is that hopefully I can capture some of that and live a comfortable oh, life as well. Definitely. So I ask every guest this, if you could sit down yeah. with any three people, oh, dead or alive, successful, whatever, what three people would it be? Dead or alive, literally anyone. It could be anyone. God, dead or alive. So a book I've sort of read for a long time. So there's a chap called Ray Dalio. Uh, you won't oh, know. I've yeah, seen, um, he's just done a podcast about value attainment guy. Have you fine, seen that okay. one? No, he, so he's written a book called Principles, yeah, uh, read, Bridgewater Capital. So I think he looks things through a very one-sided, a, a sort of very finite lens of value chain. He's like the 52 richest man in the world, I think. Uh, like yeah, that. he's very he's very wealthy. But that's not the reason I like it. I like his mind. So the way he's sort of dissected his life and the way he's continuously improved his processes. Mm. He'd be quite an interesting person to chat to. He's alive. Um, watch the podcast. There's a podcast literally just... It's oh, just, fine. It's pretty... Like, last month. Uh, amazing. And you watch it and what he's talking about is exactly what you just yeah. said. Yeah. Like, half of it, I'm like, what is he even talking about? <laughs> I, for me, it's just like, what's it's again, cool, processing it? it is. Um, I think I'd like to uh, also probably get in a room, uh, The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. Oh, definitely. And the reason for that is that I'd like to know if what I see from social media is, is real. Is real. Um, but he's also, obviously, from, from my lens, quite successful in a number of different industries. Mm. And I'd be really interested to kind of see and tease apart the kind of lessons from that. Um, third person, I, I quite like listening to... Maybe I'll, third slash fourth. So um, I'm going to expand it. So Ricky Gervais, I really enjoy his humor <laughs> and I like his mind and the way he thinks about things. I mean, he's a philosophy grad um, and underneath the kind of silliness of what he does is actually some kind of deeper, quite cool mm. messages. So I'd quite like to kind of almost spend a few hours just talking to him, w- taking away the kind of layers of humor, if you like, mm. and kind of really feeling what, what, what he kind of dialed into in his life and what's important to him. Um, and there was someone else that I just thought of that it's escaped my mind, but it, we only need three, so that's all good. Fine, that's him. But I feel like there's oh, a no, uh, that's the other chap. So Christopher Hitchens is a, is a former living chap who died of, uh, I think it was esophageal cancer. Um, he's a sort of a very outspoken atheist. Okay. Um, and uh, he, uh, I ne- ne- never always agreed with how he would say things, but he, I just think, had a really sharp mind. Mm. So he's passed away. It'd be quite cool to have sort of resurrect his brain and, and his, his persona just to kind of understand where he was coming from with those sorts of narratives. Um, he's what I would call a militant atheist. Um, don't really agree with that necessarily. Not, I'm not religious have, myself. You don't but. have to agree with different 
Sometimes you just anyway, appreciate the, yeah. way they ex- the, the way they communicate, the way they do yeah. things. Or, yeah. well, you don't have to agree or believe everything they say just yeah. to be a fan or to yeah. support. I guess the fifth one as well is Sarah Blakely. She's the she's the founder of Spanx. She's got a thing, uh, there's a business called Masterclass, which kind of world experts teaching how they do. She's a really interesting person that I don't know much about mm. um, other than the success story of her business. So I've turned three to five. Yeah, and I felt like I needed to get a woman in there because I had three, three chaps. So yeah. Yeah, Sarah Blakely. Perfect. I just want to say um, a massive thank you Mate, well, for your time welcome, today. Thank you. Um, the more we shoot, hopefully we'll come back for a part two at Great. some point. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Um, but more just than honestly, what you're doing is absolutely incredible. Thanks, um, it's inspiring. I think even probably for us to come and see what you're doing. Great. Um, it, it kind of forces us to kind of step up and elevate as well because it's so easy to get stuck in, yeah. in a rut of everyone around you. You're doing more than most of the people around you. Um, and sometimes, as you say, it's not just about doing more. It's just about working a bit smarter and actually having a bit, maybe a bit of a better game plan or having a bit more structure. Yeah, or, or understanding what's real for you, what mm. makes you feel fulfilled, what gives you meaningful work, meaningful relationships, what could give you financial freedom. And then just not being afraid to just go after that. And you don't need to apologize to anyone. You don't need to be de- delving into like work hard, work hard, work hard. Just be honest and pursue that journey. And, you know, good things will probably happen. Mm. So that's it, guys. Work hard, really hard. <laughs> but anyway, guys, there's another episode. What we will do, we'll put all the information for Cameron, um, this Cameron, not this Cameron, in, uh, <laughs> in the description box. You know what to do. Make sure you follow, you like, you comment and share as well. Once again, that's another episode of the Dreams to Reality podcast. And until next time, peace.